Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today with us is Larry Swedrow. He is the Chief Research Partner with Buckingham Wealth Partners. Larry, thanks for being on The Talking Hedge. My pleasure, Josh. Good to be with you. For those who haven't heard about Buckingham Wealth Partners, how did you get involved? What is it? Um, Tell us about yourself. Yeah, about 25 years ago now, a group of accountants had gotten together. Uh, This was uh, right at the very beginning of a change in the accounting world, where up until the middle 90s, basically, accountants were not allowed to be investment advisors, separate business. So an accountant who was trained as a financial professional, help with estate planning, insurance, uh, everything uh, integrated with taxes as well as the investment, couldn't implement the plan on the investment side. So they might recommend someone who was at a stock brokerage firm or an investment advisory firm to do the implementation. And they were often found that they were very frustrated by the lousy execution with people getting bad results, being sold, expensive commission-based products, actively managed funds that on average tended to do poorly. So there was a change in the accountancy rules that allowed accountants to become financial advisors. They both left their firms um, and formed Buckingham to bring integrated wealth solutions to individuals to integrate investment planning with estate tax insurance and everything else financial related in someone's life. Uh, I had just uh, helped uh, sell uh, a company run by Prudential, uh, uh, the big insurance company. Uh, We had built the largest mortgage company in the country along with countrywide. Every month, one or the other of us was the number one player. Uh, And I was uh, looking to go teach which I uh, was my real love. I had guest lectured at Stanford and other places when they approached me uh, about what they were doing. And I said, this is a great opportunity. I had spent my entire career advising some of the largest multinational companies in the world. I'm managing all kinds of financial risk, interest rate risk, foreign exchange risk. I had run trading rooms, et cetera. Um, And They had the planning skills that I didn't have. So it was a great fit. I joined them at the time they had 7 million of assets under management. Long story short, uh, today the company uh, advises on about 22 billion of our own assets and we're advisors on almost about, I think 38 billion or so of assets with other advisors around the country, about a thousand or so, who we provide the intellectual capital to help them give the advice. So from 7 million to approaching 60 billion in 25 years. That's, that's quite the growth. How much of that is alternative investing? Um, basically, I found you through um, a Seeking Alpha article about SIN stocks, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, but first off, with that $22 billion, I think with your uh, registered investment advisory RIA or $38 billion with the other groups you manage, how much of that do you think is alt investing? 
Yeah, well, the, the term alt-investing uh, is a pretty broad one. So and some people would include things like real estate as an alternative investment. Mm. I wouldn't necessarily include it because they're no. publicly available securities. But you can include things like gold, for example, and private equity and other investments that are not included or may not have been available in the public markets. Uh, fortunately, uh, what we've seen uh, due to the recent introduction of something called interval funds, which many of your listeners may not be aware of, uh, the interval fund structure, which I'll describe in a minute, has opened up the world of private investments to individuals in a public format. And so they could now invest in the same way that the Yales and Harvards of the world have been doing, diversifying to other unique sources of risk and return, but didn't have the daily liquidity required of mutual funds. So an interval fund structure was created and the typical interval fund structure works like this. Every quarter, there is a redemption opportunity typically, although it could be more, but it must be at least 5% that you can get out 5% of your money, which means over a period of a year, 20%. Now, let's say there was a billion dollars in a fund, that means 5% would be 50 million. Well, if you had 1 million in the fund and you're the only one seeking to redeem, you can get out 100% of your money, but the fund is capped at, uh, it can give the discretion of, uh, delivering or redeeming more than five, 50 million, but it doesn't have to. And so the funds will typically keep uh, 5% either in very liquid assets or some combination of assets and bank credit lines. There are strict SEC guidelines on this. So what that allowed it to do is to open up uh, avenues, things like uh, private credit, where you're making direct loans to companies, uh, five-year, seven-year loans that you can't do in a mutual fund because you obviously can't have daily liquidity. So we, I invest and recommend people invest in a fund run by a company called Cliffwater. The symbol is CCLFX. It's got an expected return long-term, we think, about 5% or so over treasuries, which is equity-like returns, but much less volatile because it sticks only with the most senior credits. That's the kind of thing the Harvards and Yales might invest in. Uh, we invest in another fund run by Stone Ridge, which is called Lendex, which makes three and five-year consumer and small business loans, the local pizza parlor who needs a new oven, uh, or someone's paying down 22% consumer credit card debt and can get a 15% fixed rate loan, now disintermediating the banks through companies like SoFi and LendingTree and, and Lendex is providing the capital to SoFi or LendingTree to allow them to fund those loans. Uh, so there again, we think four or 5% a year uh, above treasuries, uh, with limited downside risk, volatilities maybe a 5% versus 20 for the stock market. Both of those funds, for example, 
fell several percent in the first quarter of last year when we had the crisis. We think it in 08 might lose five to eight, nine percent, but that's a hell of a lot less than losing 40, 50, 60 with stocks, high yield bonds, et cetera. Uh, so we have been moving more and more of our assets to alternatives. Uh, another good asset class we think is reinsurance. We work with two funds. Uh, one is SRRIX run by Stonebridge and the other is XILSX run by Pioneer Amundi. Both very well run, have a little bit different uh, risk structures, uh, but you're buying one year insurance contracts or reinsurance contracts. Well, you can't have daily liquidity for that. That's a completely unique source of risk, but allows you to access that premium that for 150 years insurance or reinsurers have been accessing. So up until maybe five years ago, we hardly had any alternatives in our portfolio, but the introduction of this interval fund structure and these funds now, although they're not necessarily cheap because they're actually running businesses, it's not buying an index of securities, which is cheap to do. They're not cheap, uh, but they're a, a lot less expensive than the typical two and 20 hedge funds, who, which if you were investing with them, you got those unique source of risk, but they were taking virtually all of the excess return while you were getting all of the excess risk. So we tended to avoid them. Today, I would guess our typical clients have 10 to 15% in alternatives. Uh, and we, as we get newer alternatives introduced, I'm, for example, looking at uh, life insurance settlement. There's a couple of companies uh, who are investigating creating an interval fund structure for that. Another very logical, no correlating asset class. So I think you'll see more things like that becoming available. And then there are some private uh, transactions. Blackstone runs uh, some. Uh, private uh, equity, private real estate. There are funds that do drug royalties, another interesting asset class. So we're moving more and more to looking and investigating into those, especially where they have public vehicles. I think Warren Buffett is a big fan of reinsurance, or at least he was in 2008, 2009. Um, but probably not a big fan of, of sin stocks. So I'm curious, um, maybe it's his sin clauses or whatever else. Uh, what prompted you to write that article with uh, Seeking Alpha on sin stocks? And maybe you can explain what sin stocks are for those that don't know. Yeah, sure. Um, first, I will just add Warren Buffett owns or Berkshire owns one of the largest reinsurance companies in the world. Uh, so if if Buffett believes it's a good business, investors ought to at least think about considering investing in that asset class. And the two funds that we use basically are partnering with reinsurers, buying what are called quota shares. So they're buying entire slices of their book of business, not allowing their reinsurer to cherry pick and say, yeah, we're gonna give you this 5% of our really garbage stuff we didn't wanna write or wanna get rid of. Uh, they take 5% of their entire book of their business. So that's uh, the, what's happening in that space. So SIN stocks uh, have that name uh, for companies in industries that are generally 
uh, include tobacco, alcohol, and gaming. Uh, and some people might add defense or firearms to that, although that's everybody's definition a little different. So kind of uh, an interesting theory, especially today where SRI or ESG or sustainable investing is so much in vogue and lots of people want to express their values through their investments. So what you can get is a preference uh, for stocks that avoid the sin stocks, number one, or are considered polluters or bad in terms of governance, child labor abuses, things like that. Now, if enough people avoid buying those stocks because they don't want to support those companies, that doesn't change the profits of those companies, right? Not buying their products would, but not buying their stocks doesn't. And, the, what, and you're buying the stocks of good players uh, that express your values doesn't improve their earnings, it might improve their valuations. So what happens, the logical theory in finance would say, if enough people avoid a group of stocks, then their valuations or PEs will be lower, which means the expected returns are now higher. And the reverse would be true of the sustainable, the green stocks should have lower expected returns uh, than the brown stocks. Now it may also be true, the green stocks have less risk because they don't run the risk of being sued for pollution or they don't run the risk of all kinds of other bad events, right? So, but if you're just talking purely in terms of returns and not risk adjusted returns, the logic traditional finance theory would hypothesize sin stocks should have higher returns because some people exclude them. And that's exactly what the research has found. Uh, certainly over the long term, in fact, the, I think uh, alcohol has been the top performing or the second performing industry in both the UK and the US over the last hundred years, if my memory serves. And sin stocks have outperformed the market, I think something in the order of 2%, 2.5% uh, or so. Now, what I will point out is this is an interesting point here. You have to be careful because you can get short-term effects that work the opposite way. So if everybody decides to now invest in green assets and avoid brown assets, then in the short term, the prices of the green assets go up and you get a short-term capital gain and the brown stocks might be going down and you get losses. But once that process ends, you now have green stocks with high valuations and thus lower expected returns and brown stocks with high expected returns. So it, sometimes you could be fooled. We've had a massive shift in the last few years of money flowing into green stocks. So that could lead to short-term outperformance, just like we had in the late 90s with tech and maybe even a repeat in the last year or two because of the COVID crisis. Same kind of thing. You have to disentangle, and it's hard, the short-term and the long-term effects. So I'm actually I, writing a book on uh, that with a friend of mine, Sam Adams, the only guide you'll ever need to sustainable investing. 
and I'm right in the chapters on the research. I they go into the findings of papers and we cite them, uh, showing exactly what I've told you. So it's interesting. I'm wondering if uh, Tesla, by chance, is one of those green stocks that has been overinvested for the idea of it, whereas cannabis companies maybe um, aren't doing as well because people are staying away from it. So you're saying that the economic theory, um, just looking at the summary here, um, that share prices of sin stock businesses are becoming depressed if a large enough proportion of investors choose to avoid them. I always thought that it was during economic downturns, recession, depression, whatever, that more people would be consuming those. So as we saw cannabis becoming an essential business, there's a lot of people that are increasing their usage, especially during stay at home. So my understanding was that since stocks had an inverse relationship during economic downturns because people were consuming them more. But you're saying that the, the theory is showing that they've the appreciation is more about uh, people staying away from those and then finding value during a recession. I think you have to separate the two issues. Sin stocks, it's not that they spend more uh, on, say, alcohol, tobacco, and gaming uh, during recessions, but they are more defensive in nature. In other words, their earnings or revenues are not as tied to the economy so you get a recession, people who drink still drink. In fact, maybe they do drink a little more because they're stressed out or smoke, but generally they're more defensive. They tend to have what are considered low beta stocks. They don't move as much with the economy as high flyers. So some people like them because of that defensive nature. Uh, so that's a separate issue from the one of people screening them out. And that was still playing out, but if you get a lot of ESG, sustainable investors, and if you screen out alcohol, tobacco, and taxes, because that's expressing your values, in the short term, yeah, those prices could get depressed and you could have losses even, or not going up as much as the rest of the market. But in the longer term, it's earnings that matter relative to the price. So if the price is distressed, because lots of people are avoiding it, that's gonna mean high future returns. Uh, but you might have the pain in the short term, uh, which a lot of people can't take and they abandon it uh, because of recent performance and they are chasing the other stocks and adding fuel to that fire, if you will, even pushing the stocks even higher and that's how you get bubbles happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for those who heard ESG um, and they're thinking it's a stock symbol, it's uh, mm. environmental social governance, and then SRI is also not a stock symbol. That's social responsible investing. Yeah, a yeah. Sorry for the uh, the symbols there and using SRI. those initials. It's common language. Yeah, it is. Um, so you mentioned that higher returns to vice stocks occurred because there's more profitable and less wasteful with investment than the average corporation does. Do you think that cannabis companies will be included in the next wave of, of sin stocks uh, when this longest bull market in history comes to an end? Well, it's an interesting question. Here's the thing about uh, expressing your values. Everybody's values are unique to themselves, which makes sustainable investing very difficult. Uh, in fact, in doing the research for the book, uh, there I've read several studies that found you could take 
two exact same companies, and there are six or seven major providers of ratings of ESG, and then another dozens of others. And, you, and there, they show examples of the exact same company getting a top score from one rater and a bottom score from the other. And let me give you an example. I lived in San Francisco uh, when I ran Citicorp's West Coast Investment Bank in the late 70s, early 80s. Levi Strauss was lauded by many for giving rights uh, of benefits to gay spouses. Uh, now, some people would view that very negatively uh, and have a very different view of that. So some people would screen in Levi Strauss and others would screen it out when the company's doing the same thing. So some people would view cannabis stocks as social good and no reason not to use it, even provides medical benefits and others would view it as bad and that's a problem uh, about how you go about implementing for yourself sustainable investing. I think it really has to become personalized about how you express your values, uh, which makes it a little more difficult for someone to build a diversified portfolio on their own. So it may mean making some sacrifices in exactly what you're willing to live with and say, All right, I'm gonna use this rating and I will just have to accept that because I can't do the due diligence on every firm. And some raters will include uh, a Levi Strauss and some won't, and some will include an alcohol company and some won't. I mean, you know, it's a difficult thing. I'm curious what um, the historical returns are. So is it appropriate to call a black swan index, um, things like Marlboro or, um, bear companies that maybe are a little bit more uh, controversial to people that are concerned about health and environment? Uh, no, I think index so. just a, a collapse of everything. No, so, the, well, first of all, a black swan to define it is, is that something that is totally unexpected. Okay. Uh, uh, and so COVID, I wouldn't even consider a black swan event because Bill Gates, for example, had warned people years ago that that could happen. The military had supposedly, you know, looked at this and they had plans about how they would deal with, you know, uh, protecting the troops. They unfortunately never implemented the plans. So it has to be something that's unexpected. Uh, and that is very hard to defend against, except to make sure that uh, a sufficient amount of assets in your portfolio are always enough to dampen the overall risk of the portfolio to an acceptable level, almost regardless of what that event is. So that means you're only owning the safest assets, things like treasuries, FDIC insured CDs, uh, fixed annuities from top rated companies, staying within your state insurance limits. So you're almost certainly not likely to lose money. Uh, so things like alternative lending, like I have very significant assets for, those are alternatives for equities. They're not alternatives for the safe bonds in your portfolio and should never be thought of in that way. And every investor has to figure out for themselves how much they need in those safest securities and don't worry about what the yield is. 
you need to make sure you have sufficient assets because the one thing we know is the unexpected will show up and it will show up on occasion in a very severe way. We've now had three bear markets of at least 35%, uh, in some cases much worse than that, in just since, nine, since 2000. So basically 21 year period, once every seven years. Yeah, even if you're a 65 year old recent retiree, you've got to plan on maybe three, four more of those at the very least over your lifetime. So you better make sure you have enough safe bonds and don't use that portion to go buy dividend paying stocks or REITs or utilities thinking that that's an alternative uh, to those safe bonds. It isn't. I, I, wanna, I wanna ask you about uh, quantitative easing and if tips or treasury inflation protection securities uh, are still viable in this day and age. But before I get there, I wanna ask you uh, about historical returns for SIN stocks. What are the historical returns? Is it something that you know speculators and or value investors should be looking at right now as we kind of head into maybe the end of this bull run? Well, uh, I'll give you just a few comments. One, as I mentioned earlier, SIN stocks over the long term, 100 years of data, have outperformed the markets by a couple of percent or so. Mm -hmm. Now, whether you want to access those premiums will depend upon your social values. Mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you to buy uh, alcohol stocks because you're going to get a higher return if that goes against your values. So you make a decision. I'm willing to live without owning those stocks in a purely market-like portfolio or even owning a basket of those stocks, however you want. Uh, so that's the, that's the real answer to that question. You should expect a premium, although you can get this short-term effect, and that could even be several years if we get this trend keep going and going for you know next five or 10 years. Possible sin stocks could underperform because of the cash flows into stocks that exclude them. Uh, but then, when that process ends, unless people stop drinking or smoking uh, or hunting or whatever, or going to Las Vegas uh, casinos, you know, then the earnings will be there and you'll get high returns. But you may suffer through a period where cash flows are swamping those higher earnings uh, relative to the price. So you gotta be a long-term discipline investor, which you should be with any investment. Yeah, it could be really interesting though, cause to your point about gambling, people might not look at that right now, might not go for Boeing cause of the issues they're having. And so if they're looking at sin stocks, um, they might just be piling into to cannabis, potentially tobacco's kind of weaning off, but vaping's coming back all of that. Uh, my crystal ball is always cloudy. So I'm a big believer <laughs> in diversifying your risk across as many unique sources of risk as you can. That means not concentrating it only in US stocks, certainly, but international developed markets, and then other asset classes like reinsurance, alternative lending, alternative credit, uh, drug royalties, other types of uh, investments. So, and that is exactly the way the Harvards and Yales and other sophisticated institutions invest. And the big benefit, as I mentioned, you no longer have to pay two and 20 to get access to those 
types of investments. And in most cases, or at least many of them, they are available in public securities that investors can access without going through advisors, although in some cases you do need to be working with an advisor because that's how that fund has chosen to distribute its product, if you will. So I'm kind of looking at uh, federal legalization probably sometime soon with the House and Senate and uh, the presidency all going Democratic more in favor of cannabis. Um, you're looking at Virginia, for example, saying right after the November election that they were broke, looking to, to legalize in New York, same thing. Um, and so at the federal level, last, uh, last administration, or last year, um, I think the administration, uh, previous uh, administration printed $3.5 billion. Mm -hmm. And now we've got all this other quantitative easing, all these new packages, trillion dollars here, trillion dollars there. Curious, uh, with all of this printing, they're calling it quantitative easing. Um, it's debasing our currency, or at least um, not doing it any favors. Are Treasury inflation protection securities or TIPS a thing for alternative investing in these days, or is is that out? Well, let's address a few things uh, for you. So the U.S. debt to GNP ratio had historically been fairly low, um, except during World War II, we got over 100%, but then we became a nation of savers. Uh, and the debt to GDP ratio collapsed, got down into the 20s and almost went to zero uh, when Bill Clinton was president. And then it exploded under George Bush and made dramatically worse uh, after because of the recession uh, and the policies that both Democrats and Republicans have followed. The academic research seems to indicate that sort of just like for people, there's some point you can borrow and that's okay, but at some point you, your debt burden becomes so great, it can have a, a drag on your ability to do things. What the research shows is when you get your debt to GNP at about 100%, that's where you start to get negative impacts on your economy. And I'll see if I could explain it fairly simply. Let's say over the long term, we expect GNP to grow 2% and inflation to be 2%. That means you know, your nominal GNP would grow at four and maybe interest rates should be about 4%. So if you have 100% debt to GDP, you're paying 4% of that every year in the interest, but your economy is growing 4% and therefore you can carry that debt. But when the debt goes, say, to 150%, you're paying out 6%, right, uh, of the GNP, but you're only growing at 4 And people then say, oh, we don't trust their ability to repay, number one, or keep their promises. So foreign holders of U.S. debt, and China, for example, has been a massive holder of our debt, could start to say we're no longer willing to buy treasuries or hold as much. That could put upward pressure on interest rates because you have less demand. Uh, and then what also can happen, and here's a big risk, which is what I think is playing out in Japan, which now has gotten to 250% plus of their debt to GNP. So now what happens is the older people in the country say, 
hey, they will not be able to keep their promises on in the US, Social Security, Medicare. So I have to save more because I'm gonna have to bear more of those costs and the savings rate goes up and depresses the growth. So you can get both of those factors at work and that's where we're risking. Personally, I think it's absolutely insane to propose another 2 trillion, which is 25% uh, added onto the three. I think we were gonna be a 2 trillion deficit. They're now talking another 2 trillion. With this plan, that's four. The GNP is roughly 20 trillion. So you're talking four out of uh, 20, that's 20% 20 more in one year. So we're gonna go from 100 to, you know, 100 into the 110, 115 by end, and no end in sight. I think that's going to start to have a drag, especially as we have an older population who's worried about it and they're gonna increase. I think this, there is no reason to give people who are making $200,000 a year a rebate. Uh, and in fact, a lot of states are getting rebates when their budget deficits, in some cases, were hardly impacted because they didn't shut down their economies. Uh, so yes, we do need stimulus and the people at the lower end, especially the workers uh, who are in industries that were shut down, we certainly need to take care of those people. Uh, and we certainly have big need for infrastructure. We need to Wi-Fi the whole country in 5G. Our roads are in terrible repair. We should be proposing plans to make investments in those areas, not making transfer payments to people who have no need for it. I mean, no one in my company got laid off, but a lot of people uh, will be getting checks uh, based on the, the Biden uh, plan. And in fact, their balance sheets are stronger than ever because they couldn't spend any money. The, I don't think people know that the U.S. debt, a household debt to uh, their savings ratio is the strongest it has literally ever been. And yet we're writing these checks. I literally think it's insanity. And it's putting a burden on future generations because it will likely lead or runs the risk of, uh, you know, somebody's going to be paying that bill at some point and they're the ones likely to pay it. I hope that bill does not go through and they come up with a more rational plan, but I'm not that optimistic about that. It, it's a pretty risky policy to continue to keep printing money. Um, I think we're seeing already that it takes more and more dollars to buy the same goods and services. Housing is one of those things. Um, but also the returns that people are expecting. So it used to be that if you were to buy into an IPO, that was really uh, risky. And yet we're seeing people going into cryptos and all these other things trying to get uh, more and more returns. And I think that's just as a result of, of their purchasing power being eviscerated by this overprinting. So to, to put it into perspective, um, with sin stocks at least, um, people looking for higher returns. So um, SIN stocks having IPOs, they were underpriced 22% versus non-SIN stocks going IPO at 18% uh, after controlling for pre-issuance and um, issuant characteristics. So, and you also mentioned the alpha that was higher 
than um, other companies. So uh, they move a lot faster. They're maybe you could say they're- No, so alpha means uh, a risk-adjusted return explained by exposure to common factors like the value premium or the size premium. So if you took a, say a SIN stock that had a billion dollar market cap and traded at a 10 PE, and you took a similar company that same PE, same market cap, but non-SIN industry, the SIN stock would outperform. <laughs> sort of, that, that's sort of what's out. So once you account for these common factors, they had higher alphas. What's your opinion about the flight to more risky assets with Robinhood uh, and this whole thing with AMC and GameStop? Is this just a result of people looking for higher returns as a result of not really uh, getting income or you know being able to buy a house? I mean, what is it? What's what's the fundamental? Well, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting topic. We could spend a, an hour <laughs> just on that alone. I wrote about this in my latest book. Uh, your complete guide to a successful and secure retirement. In the introduction, I called it the four horsemen of the retirement apocalypse. Mm. Uh, and one of them was what you're talking about. So the typical 60-40 portfolio over the very long term, 60% stocks, 40% say intermediate treasury bonds, uh, that had returned about eight and a half percent. Over the period since 82, when the bull market began, or 81, whenever that you know it began, that 60-40 portfolio returned over 10%. And so my generation that lived through that, that's their period of their savings. They, you know, now people look at that period and say, well, gee, I can get 10% for a 60-40 portfolio. The odds of you're getting that today are not for zero, but they're about as close to zero, I think, as you could get. And they're not even close to the eight and a half percent that you got over the much longer hundred year period. And the reason is pretty simple. Stocks had returned 10% and bonds had returned just to keep the math simple, let's say six, so 60, 40 got you eight. Well, safe treasuries today are yielding one, okay? And stock price earnings ratios are much higher. And so most financial economists are thinking stocks might return maybe six or seven in the US, maybe some people think even less. So if you use, let's say six and one, well, now you're gonna get maybe three and a half instead of eight. And that's the reality. And I hope people are not planning on that. And so that forces some people into thinking, hey, I can't make my retirement goal in safe bonds, so I'm going to take more risk. I think that's absolutely the wrong thing. What they should do is figure out a different retirement plan, maybe think about working longer uh, uh, as one option, downsizing homes, moving to a cheaper living area, because you could take that risk and end up with a very bad outcome uh, if stocks don't do well for lots of reasons we could think of. So the, that's one thing I wanna point out. People's expectations need to be set. So the way you forecast bond returns is look at the yield, at least on treasuries, we have no credit risk. That should be your forecast. And for equities, the best predictor we have 
is taking the inverse of the earnings PE ratio, so an earnings yield. If you want, you can, a simple way is to take the PE. Today, the S&P is about 20, maybe even a little higher, 22. Invert that to get an earnings yield. Let's call it 5%, uh, 20 over one, or one over 20 is 5%. That gives you the expected real return because stocks grow earnings with inflation. So we'd add say two for inflation, that's your seven for stocks. Another uh, metric that works equally well, and so I like to take an average of the two, is to use what's called the CAPE 10, the cyclically adjusted PE ratio. Anyone can find it Googling CAPE 10. And today that's about 30 or even a bit higher. So invert that, you're at 3.3 uh, or so. Uh, and so add two to that, you're at 5.3 for US stocks. You're higher for international by about 2% and even higher still for emerging markets by another one or two. So if you want higher returns and more risk, go overseas, at least for some portion of your portfolio. So let's come back to the where the Fed, I think, has really personally believed made a serious error. I think they absolutely made the right decision to drive rates down quickly to zero, but that penalizes savers uh, and all the retirees who need income. And so it's okay to drive it down short term and then you have to let the market go back up because all those people now either will be spending less and there's very good evidence from studies, for example, in the UK, that depressed interest rates leads to a sluggish economy because the savers don't have interest income to spend and it's a mistake there. Uh, so now the other problem is you get the people saying, hey, I can't get my three, four, 5%, so I'm gonna go buy dividend paying stocks or real estate or junk bonds or other alternatives. And then an 08 happens or a COVID and safe bonds go up as they did in the first quarter. Treasuries had a big rally, helping to dampen the risk of the equities that got killed. So your portfolio didn't crash that badly. But if you, instead of owning safe bonds, own REITs or dividend paying stocks or emerging market bonds, right? They went down 30, 40, 50, 60%. as bad or worse than the stocks did. And that's why I tell people never treat those things as substitutes for the safe bonds. Make sure you have enough safe bonds so you're not in that situation of that double whammy. And now you can't even rebalance your portfolio because I, I sold my some of my treasuries to get back to my target. So I sold high when yields were much or even lower than they are now. And I bought stocks when they were low. I could do that because I had saved treasuries. If I own dividend paying stocks or REITs, they went down just as much. So I couldn't even rebalance and get that benefit. So I think the Fed has, through its actions, made a very big mistake or caused people to make the mistake of taking a lot more risk than they have the ability, willingness, or need to take. And I'd encourage people to read my retirement book. It walks you through exercises to help you figure out what is your ability, willingness, and need to take risk. 
Uh, before I ask you about all of those links where people can find you, I want to I want to ask you one question before we wrap this up, which is um, if or when the stock market does kind of collapse and has a correction or recession or depression and folks that are in Robinhood or, or wherever else uh, who don't have trailing stop losses or, or protection and they end up losing a lot of their portfolio and feel that the system is rigged if they don't already feel like that with what happened with the whole Robin Hood AMC deal. What is your take on the future of investing? Is it going to include automated algorithmic trading with AI machine learning to do it for them to get them in at the right time and out at the right time? <laughs> What's your well, take on that? Yeah, well, let's uh, go back because I didn't answer your other question. Sorry, on tips. So tips are the only pure inflation hedge. Uh, so if that's your biggest worry, certainly tips will help. It won't help if we get a hyperinflation like Germany had, where money becomes worthless. But if inflation goes to five, six, seven, eight, ten percent, yeah, you'll get a perfect hedge. So go, that's good. It is much better. Gold is a god-awful inflation edge, except if your horizon is at least 100 years. And to demonstrate that, gold is worth today in buying power, virtually the same as when Jesus walked the earth. Uh, an ounce of gold bought a good suit of clothes. And that's about what it does today. So you got zero return for holding gold for 2,000 years in spending power. And from 1980 to 2003, Gold lost 86% of its value in real terms. Now, that can't be if you're a hedge of inflation, right? Gold may have other benefits as a flight to safety, but it is not an inflation hedge. You want an inflation hedge, own real asset or tips that uh, can help in that area. Okay, so your, your next question was just a, let's, Give it again here. <laughs> so my question was with with the, oh, uh, the collapse in trust with what's happened recently in the market. Yeah, if or when there's a correction, will people move towards AI automated algorithmic trading to do it for them? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, automated algorithmic trading is not going to guarantee you getting in or getting out at the right times. Uh, algorithmic trading is already being done for a decade or longer from by the most sophisticated investors and they use it to trade small amounts so people can't detect their actions and trying to you know, get the best prices without moving the market. Uh, that's mostly what algorithmic trading is done for. Uh, I think here's the important thing uh, that's happening. Uh, there's a good academic paper on the subject of market liquidity, or in this case, illiquidity. We've seen a big trend in moving from active to passive investing because passive investing has far outperformed active investors in aggregate for decades. And so more people are moving to be passive. That means you have less participants in what's called price discovery, buying and selling. So there's less liquidity and smaller amounts of new cash flows can move prices more easily. That's number one. Second thing is with the advent of decimalization and all this high frequency traders, 
there are virtually no market makers anymore as there was when I was a young kid investing. You could go and find out there was a bid and it could be for a large amount of block, 10,000 shares, 100,000 shares. A stock might be bid 10 and offered at 10 and a half. So there was a big spread there where the market maker could afford to put up their risk capital and lose money if it went against them because they were getting that big spread. With penny you know, pricing and all this high frequency trading, now you can trade Microsoft you know, or any of the big stocks, maybe the one cent difference. So there's no reason for market makers, liquidity is gone, which is why now so many people, all the big mutual funds do mostly algorithmic trading. And I know one big fund family does all the trades in hundred share lots. That never used to be the case. And they're doing it because they know if they try to trade a big block, it'll move the market against them. So I think those two issues together mean we're going to see a lot more volatility in individual stocks in the market, a, a lot more flash crashes, a lot more GameStop episodes, because now we, the people who were willing to go short are now realized that they have a risk they didn't have before, which is before they knew a call icon might go after uh, uh, um, um, the guys who were shorting Herbalife, you know, uh, but he's one guy and didn't doesn't have you know twenty billion dollars that the Robinhood investors ganged up and drove the price. So with no liquidity there, their small actions could drive prices. And what this recent paper on liquidity found is one dollar of cash flow is driving, they estimate valuations $5, up or down. So 20 billion of cash flows drives 100 billion of valuations. Of course, if there's no fundamentals there, which in the case of GameStop, no one was on Robinhood saying, this company, we should buy it because the earnings are gonna be great. They were just ganging up and rightly, they could screw, if you will, those hedge funds. Another hedge fund saw the same thing, jumped on and made 700 million. Uh, but now all these shorts who are incredibly important to the market, they're not evil. They keep prices rational, prevented prices from only being determined by the optimists. So they keep the market more rational. We don't want to destroy them disappearing. But if they now see this risk greater, they're going to be more careful. We'll see less shorting which means more overvaluation of these types of stocks. So I think you're gonna see more overvaluation of companies that don't deserve those prices, more bubbles, more volatility, more episodes like this. And some people, sadly, we just saw a case end up committing suicide because they thought they could play this game uh, now, it's okay if you want to go to the racetrack with $10 or $100 or whatever you can afford to lose, but you shouldn't take your IRA account to the Merrill Lynch or Robin Hood or whatever office and, you, you know, in the same way, right? Same thing. This is gambling and speculating. It has nothing to do with investing. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, 
It's a great conversation. Is there anything that we missed at this point that you'd like to uh, to discuss before we? Roll? Well, we covered a lot of ground. There's uh, obviously we could talk for hours just about uh, market efficiency and how investors should think about investing. Uh, I would just recommend people uh, two books of my, the 18 that I've written. One is their complete guide to a successful and secure retirement covers the widest range of topics of any book on retirement by far, including women's issues and planning a life in retirement and preparing your heirs. Many books are good in any one of these topics, but none of them covered the breadth. And I recruited an all-star team of experts to help me write each of those chapters. And the other book is The Incredible Shrinking Alpha, which talks about why it's getting harder and harder for active managers to win. Uh, and uh, so therefore the most likely way for you to achieve your financial goals is to avoid picking individual stocks and trying to time the market. Instead, use low cost funds that systematically invest across asset classes or factors and really build a globally diversified portfolio. For those who are interested in what I believe is the science of investing, making decisions based on evidence, uh, I write blogs uh, for uh, paid pieces on four websites, or Seeking Alpha, Alpha Architect, Advisor Perspectives, uh, and The Evidence-Based Investor. And if you can't remember that, you can just follow me at Twitter, at Larry Swedro. Anytime I write an article, I post it there and you can follow the link. So that's a way to follow that. And one of the things, lastly, uh, uh, one of the things uh, I offer to all readers of my books is you can always email me at lswedro at buckinghamgroup.com. I answer every question uh, I get uh, and uh, there's no charge. So always happy to help. That's great. And we'll try and include as many of those uh, links in the show notes down in the description as possible. All right. I think we're going to roll that one up. I want to thank my guest, Larry Swedrow. He is the chief research partner with Buckingham Wealth Partners. Larry, thanks for being on Talking Edge. My pleasure, Josh. Anytime. Happy to come back. Yeah. I definitely want to get you back on in at least six months if the market doesn't crash before then. <laughs> back to the talking hedge and find out with that we're going to roll this one up i'm josh kincaid this is the talking hedge don't forget to like share and subscribe or don't and i'm out don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got thanks for listening to today's show to check out more great cannabis podcasts go to podconnects.com here's a preview of one of our other shows Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Canachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.